Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Bill Denahan, CEO of the Alcohol and Drug Addiction and Mental Health Services Board in Cuyahoga County. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Greg, and really uh, glad to be here. So, Bill, you've directed governmental agencies at the state, county, and local levels for over 40 years. Today, you lead the largest Adams Board in Ohio. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the Adams Board is and how it works? Well, Greg, we are the safety net for anyone who has behavioral health issues, meaning mental health, uh, addiction, uh, suicide, uh, things of that nature, and we call behavioral health. We're the safety net, meaning those folks that does not have insurance or the insurance that they have does not cover fully what they need. Generally, people are covered by Medicaid for treatment but they're not covered for housing, they're not covered for employment, they're not covered for emergency services that round out the recovery of a person, whether they're in mental illness and or addiction. So we provide all these other services uh, through a series of providers that we have. Uh, we have 50 providers, and uh, we do not provide the services ourselves. We contract them out. And through these contracts, they provide prevention and or treatment of services. And it's a whole laundry list of services. And it's, I think, over 177 different programs. And um, they really are meant to make the person whole. So in Ohio, we have Medicaid, which we appreciate. It does the treatment part. But to be whole, you need a place to live. You need a job or a hope for a job. And you may need uh, emergency services, like detoxification or, or a sober bed for, uh, for if you have an addiction of, of a drug, or housing, and a vocational service. And there's so many other services that we provide that, that uh, gives a, an individual in Cuyahoga County the opportunity and the chance to be whole uh, from um, behavioral health. And, and the thing that we know about this is that mental health and addiction are diseases. And diseases are treatable. And people uh, receive treatment and recover, just like you and I are talking today. So to be eligible for your services, do you have to live in Cuyahoga County? 
Preferably, but I take the position that uh, we treat first and ask questions later. Okay. So now, in terms of those that are struggling with opioid addiction, what specifically, what kind of resources does the Adams Board offer for that? Um, so we do prevention services, and uh, and we provide uh, treatment services for a person uh, that, that needs services. Um, they have to want it. And uh, and it and I can't force them into it, and that's kind of important, Greg. In that uh, it's not like mental health. If if they're a danger to themselves or somebody else, I could probate them and I could force them into treatment. For uh, addiction, I legally I cannot do anything unless they want it or they've done something wrong and they're in drug court, and the judge says, "Well, do you want treatment or do you want incarceration?" So there you have leverage. So generally when somebody comes to us, it's not in the beginning phases or the middle phases of their addiction. It's usually at the very, very end when they've burned all bridges and they have nowhere else to go and at the, at the lowest part of their life, which is very, very sad. Before three years ago, we were averaging maybe between 20 and 50 uh, fatalities in, in heroin. Per year. Per, per year for Congo County. Mm -hmm. And uh, the number of uh, motor vehicle accidents was always number one, was about 180 to 200. In uh, 2013, we had 199 fatalities. First time it went above. And then 2014, it was 235. 2015, 275. This year, counting up the first five and a half months, will exceed over 450. And that's not just a little bit of a gain. That's a humongous gain. So the services we have in the beginning, we try to have uh, prevention services. The, what we're doing today is the prevention it's, it's letting folks know uh, the consequences of something and how to deal with it. And, and hopefully the message is uh, uh, stay away from it. It'll kill you. And, and the thing that they need the most at that time is detoxification, a place to clean out. Uh, and all too often, Greg, uh, we, um, our providers have to say, well, uh, you can't do it today. Why don't you come back in two weeks? Hmm. For detox even. Yeah. They've got to wait for detox. Yeah. Uh -huh. some, some, are, some are immediate. Mm -hmm. We have it at St. Vincent's Charity Rosary Hall. We have it at Salvation uh, Army Harbor Light mm -hmm. and Stella Mars. And um, they vacillate back and forth. On, on wait times, and I get all the wait times every day to stay on top who's, who's current, who is a two-week uh, delay. Yeah. And the longer we get into this tsunami of, of folks that uh, need help, uh, the, the worse it gets. So uh, getting a person into detox is critical. After we get them into detox, um, they need long-term sober bed treatment. And what we used to do is uh, give them treatment for 30 days, then send them home. Well, that's really the wrong thing to do because they're going back to the location 
they became addicted. And uh, we have found, at least I have found, by talking to recovering uh, heroin addicts that they need long-term sober beds. So can you define the long-term? Long-term is between 9 and 18 months. It's not just 30 days or 60 days. It's, it is a long time where they get and learn a lifestyle uh, it, that is not conducive to the easy availability of getting uh, heroin in this country and, and learn to have the confidence that they could live without that addiction on a day-to-day basis. And, and, there, and there's a number of ways to do it. It could be, be medical-assisted treatment. Uh, it could be um, a total abstinence through the AA 12-step program. Both of them are successful. Both of them work. And they both could work together. And so um, uh, either one, uh, when I get the reports back from recovering heroin addicts, it's wherever they were were treated that they say this is the way it works. Hmm. So so I get them with medical and I get them with uh, the 12-step sobriety program. So... um, that's important, and, and it's something that we d- did not have in our cycle of services. As I said, we trained for 30 days and sent them home and say, God bless you, and everything's wonderful. Well, uh, that's not the way it works, and, uh, and because of the, uh, the literally collapse of, of our system in terms of capacity, um, we find that uh, we are... We are um, in a very vulnerable position, and um, and we have moms and dads, and we have uh, grandparents coming to us on a daily basis. Uh, what should I do? My grandson's uh, doesn't work. He's twenty eight years old, and he's living in the basement, and he sleeps all day, and and he he's, he's gone somewhere at night. What should I do? Well, uh, it's hard to say to him. Look, you, you got to find some some tough love and let them and and let him let them know that the longer they support him by providing a roof over his head, the longer he'll be out there using. And um, it's a hard thing to say. And the more vulnerable he'll be, though. And the more vulnerable he'll be, and. Um, so we, as a safety net, have to adapt to that. And so, Greg, that's what we're going through right now. So when a family discovers their child is addicted to opioids, um, they, they automatically go into crisis mode. I know we did. So what advice could you give to parents to avoid them? You know, so their, their, their loved one says, okay, you know, I, I'm using and I need your help. So how can, what, what can you share so that they don't get exploited when trying to choose a treatment program for their loved one? Well, that's a really hard question to answer. Uh, there's, there's very few treatment programs that don't work. Uh, but when they don't work, it's, it says, in my viewpoint, as much the person going through treatment as it is the treatment. And uh, a person has to want the treatment to be successful. 
and uh, we've had um, people go in for detox and get cleaned up and immediately go back out because they're flushed and clean and start using again. That's the extreme, but it, but it does happen. I think that um, that it, it is a it is a very very difficult period uh, for the uh, families. They they need to know that um, this is the ultimate crisis, and um, and to be careful about how they um, approach their uh, their their children while they're in treatment. Why is that? They're, well, for some, for some examples, a uh, young woman goes into treatment and mom and dad comes over and says, boy, you look wonderful. Why don't you come home with me this weekend? She's gone. Mm. She's back out again. Mm. Now, that was a loving thing to say, and, and we're finding out that's happening. So we're saying to the, uh, well, if you come in here, we want you to sign a commitment that you're going to stay, even when you're feeling good. So, uh, and we can't keep them. And, uh, and what we need is leverage, and the leverage uh, uh, that is uh, that is probably the most successful leverage is that which is in uh, drug court, where um, the judge says, look, uh, we'll, we'll exonerate everything if you go into treatment, and you stay in treatment, and it, it could last as long as a year. And... Um, yeah, we we visited Judge Mattia's drug court. And Very know, successful. Isn't it, the one of the most wonderful things that uh, I've had the opportunity to to see is Judge Mattia in action uh, at graduation, mm. and and see how he feels about uh, these individuals that he's been with for the last year and how they feel, yeah. and they're together. He takes them under his wing. Yes, he does, and uh, he is. Uh, Actually, married a couple two years ago. Remarried them. He um, he has a special knack and touch for it. And and now Judge uh, Sennenberg uh, is doing the same thing with the other new court that they have. So um, that's very special, and um, that works most of the time. It's not perfect, but it works most of the time. And and it's because there's leverage there, and the leverage is if they if they go off then they're in jail. Yeah. And um, you have social leverage with families. The, the leverage of families say, uh, you know, uh, do, nobody wants to disappoint their parents. Nobody wants to disappoint their kids. Nobody wants to disappoint their spouse or their employer. And that's leverage. And, and learning that leverage in a positive way uh, is, uh, is part of the the part of the transformation that works. Picking an agency uh, that is certified and qualified uh, is, is very, very difficult. And um, um, I, I think uh, that it, it goes to um, the folks that are working there. I mean, most of the folks that are in the agencies, Greg, you're going to find that they're former addicts themselves. And they're in recovery. They've been there. And you remember, you can't you can't fool somebody that's been through the course. These these are really wonderful people who have traveled it and and are in uh, in sobriety and um, have, t have increased their education to be counselors. Generally, those are the most successful ones. We have an agency in Cleveland uh, 
that's uh, run by all uh, alumni called Etna House. And um, it's, a, it's a halfway program uh, for, for women. And the entire program it has, is run by alumni, from their president all the way down to the person that does the day work. And I think that has an effect that, that they've been there. They've done that. They know what they're going through. So but they've also gone through that house. That right? house. Yeah. So that that's, house. That's, and, that's one step and, further. And, yeah. and, the, and the path going through, the painful path of, of recovery and, and, and learning yourself all over again. So, um, and, and that's not perfect. There are people that walk out in the middle of their treatment uh, because they, again, they can't force them to stay. So, I think in, in this evolution that we're going through, we are learning how to do it better. And we are learning that we need longer-term beds for them to be in. We are learning the closer association with those who have been there as alumni. Uh, Is that well, I'm sorry. And then we're learning that there are leverages out there hmm. and learning what leverages work, family, um, job, Things like that. Is insurance starting to pick up the tab on that additional bedtime? I don't think so. Um, no. So that's going to be a struggle. Yeah. Well, it's, it is a struggle. And uh, we haven't reached a point where America says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a major medical health issue. Disease. It is disease. And we've got to treat it as such. And, and, and long-term... Uh, sobriety is part of the answer, and it has to be funded. And and uh, uh, for medical assisted treatment, it could cost between one hundred and ten to three hundred dollars a day. For uh, the twelve step sobriety program, it could cost as low as twelve to fifteen dollars a day. So it is a range, and we're learning how to administrative have flexibility to work within that instead of working in silos and not working together. And that's the other thing that we've learned, that uh, in, in terms of us as government working with the uh, addiction uh, industry and, and uh, breaking down the silos uh, with the ultimate helping the individual. So we're not there yet, Greg. But we're learning a lot of good things, and uh, we're, we're, I think we're getting there. But uh, we need more resources uh, to do the job that we need to do. So, speaking of silos, then in relation to the healthcare industry, that's prevalent everywhere. If you've got mental issues, then that information is held with your provider for that. Your primary care provider has their information. And, you know, if, if you have a substance abuse issue, all of that information is held there uh, with the treatment facility that you go through there. So how can family members work to facilitate this sharing? Because that, it seems to me that sharing back and forth is really critical. Well, if you've got a disease... You know, you've got a couple of diseases going. You need to you need to be talking back and forth. Otherwise, well, you're shooting in the dark, aren't you? So the Health Portable Care Act is meant good. Um, and my belief um, that it's uh, overanalyzed. 
And um, I'll give you an example, which we call HIPAA. Um, the court wanted uh, us to give the jail liaisons uh, information relative to the persons in jail that has mental health issues or addiction issues. And they would call our office and say, would you give us information about HIPAA? Guess what the answer was? No, we can't do that. So that went on for months. Finally, somebody says, well, what do you really want? He says, well, I'd like to know where they're treated last. Oh, we could do that. So we had this huge meeting. And finally he says, if you ask us for the last place of treatment, we will give that to you and we'll give it to you immediately. But if you ask us for the diagnosis of it, you won't get it. And the other thing, what value is the diagnosis if it's a month old or six months old? What you need to know is where they were serviced last. So we finally figured out how to ask the question and work within the structured framework not to break the law. And um, that was learning and understanding that there are certain things you can ask and certain things you can't ask for. And so now uh, the court sends us by social security number and that we respond where this person uh, was treated for last. It works. But before that, when somebody says, well, I need some HIPAA information for you, it doesn't work. It, you know, it was in the beginning and it doesn't work well. So, um, but there, there's another part to put your question. And that is, um, often a family has a, a, a child that's in their late er, teens, early 20s, and has been treating the, treating the child all his adult life or young life, and finds out that they can't get information because they don't have a signed document that the child has given to release after they turn 18. <laughs> there are some things we do in this country that's right, and there's some things that I don't agree with. That's one of them. And um, so I, uh, so I've worked with families, and uh, families has a 35 year old uh, child, and uh, and uh, so when she's well, she will not give the release to the family. And and I said, okay, there'll come a time when she will need you. And she'll have an episode at that moment, have her sign the release. And it works every time. And uh, then the, the um, family becomes further engaged and is able to do things. Now, that's manipulative, and I know that. It doesn't matter. But it works. Yeah. Because uh, if a person is, is, and what usually happens in this particular case, she refuses to take the medication. She'll have an episode. They'll, uh, the police will come, and, and there will be some bad things happen. So uh, I said, look, get, get the form. Carry the form in your purse. And what happens, have her sign it. Well, that's, that's part of the way we have to deal with it. Um, I, would, I would prefer that um, when there's just pure parents involved, and they've been involved for a long period of time, that uh, it's, it's, not, it's better for them to have the ability to get the information. Now, if the parent came out of nowhere 
and hasn't been involved with the, uh, the adult child for 20 years, that's a different story. Sure, absolutely. And they're probably not going to be in our audience listening to this anyhow, that parent. Right. Um, so let's talk just a little bit. Well, first of all, the qualifying criteria when selecting a treatment facility. You went through that. We talked about that just a little bit. Is there any disqualifiers there that you might be able to mention for us, Bill? Well, here, here's the thing. Um, they got to find a place to go. Right now, today, uh, there's very few places that that will be open. Uh, I we have between those that are halfway houses and those that are medically assisted treatment and those that are under our funded program could be about 40 agencies. There are only maybe two or three that have a bed. So I've heard that um, I've heard it said that relapse is really part of recovery. So why should people not consider a relapse a failure? Well, um, that's a hard question uh, for me to answer. Um, uh, the, the fact of the matter is um, relapse does happen, that we're uh, part of the human race, and that uh, uh, addiction is, um, is, is, is extremely difficult to overcome when it could stay in your body for a lot longer than you think. And you think that you're over it, and you take a sniff, and you're and you're on the trail again. And um, and and I think that uh, our society uh, makes it so easy uh, to to go there again. I mean, uh, we haven't stood up with each other in our living rooms, in our churches, in our and our factories and our meetings and said, okay, we've had enough. We're not going to tolerate it. We're not, nobody's going to, we're not going to do drugs in this country anymore. And I was around during the 70s and 80s when Mothers Against Drunk Drivers took to that same position, and they made a difference. They made a huge difference in reducing the number of people driving drunk in America. And we're not there yet. And, and my, and so uh, uh, relapse, uh, as so many times, becomes uh, not only a reality, becomes well, um, that's part of uh, of the program. And my view is that that may be part of the program, but let's find out what you learned, and let's go back to what you didn't learn that you keep going over and get to that point. Speaking of that. Um, so, so many people end up going to multiple service providers for treatment. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, there just isn't linkage between the two service providers. So, it's the equivalent, and, and so the second service provider or the third service provider oftentimes will just start over yeah. versus picking up where things left off and talking with the other server yeah. service provider. So, it's kind of like starting to... Uh, climb Mount Everest with one crew and stumbling and going a little ways down but not all the way down and swapping out that crew and then starting going back to square one and starting over. Yeah, that, that's where good case management comes in and it should come in. And, and, um, and, and it happens all too often where 
uh, uh, one will start at one level and the other one will start at another level, and it all has to do with funding. It all has to do with preference by the doctor that gets certified. Some doctors will just treat with suboxone. Some doctors will treat with, treat with methadone. Some doctors will do both. Some doctors will just do Bevitrol. So there are preferences among uh, uh, folks as to who uses what, and some doesn't use, some don't use any, and um, and it goes back to the coordination of open beds, and um, and there, and there are some where um, some some folks can't take specific drugs, uh, so. Um, we are learning right now that uh, we have to understand, have a history of what happened to the person who went through this, and have that history as part of a safeguard should they go back again. So what should family members do to make sure that that history is the whole history and, and to work with all the service providers to make sure that happens? Well, it might just not be up to family members. So you mentioned family members. I mean, uh, 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 it's family members um, are there for the love and support. The profession has to figure come to a point where a family member should not feel that they have to do their job. And and in my view is that if we think the family members that they have to do it that not everybody's going to buy into that, and they may not uh, understand the subtlety of that. So um, I, I take the position that um, uh, we're the profession, we're the industry. We should know how to do it, and, and we should be doing it. And, and we're not doing it where uh, uh, somebody like you, Greg, is asking the question, why not family members, because that's the last resort. Right. And that's, that's not the way we should be going. Mm. Yeah. But that happens. Sure. Okay. So let's talk for a second about big picture. You've seen a lot. And you've seen this opiate epidemic emerge here in Northeast Ohio. Um, can you share with us your observations, what it's, how it's changed your office, and what it is that you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I... I, um, I, I I'm pretty flexible in my day. I have 50 different issues to deal with, but it always comes back to um, heroin and uh, the opiate uh, um, tsunami that we have. And, and where am I going to find the next bed? And how can I get the person into detox? Um, the change is that the number of people that are being treated uh, is far exceeds the capacity for us to treat. Now, I don't know why that's so hard to understand since we've quadrupled the number of people dying from it. And yet the funding from that is not reflective of what I just said. And until the resources are there uh, to, to match that, these discussions, and a guy like me is going to say what I'm saying, we need resources, and we don't have the resources to do it. And until we have the resources to do it, we're going to have people uh, uh, going back out and using and dying. And um, I just 
believe that um, uh, that we this country has not come into grips uh, that we need the resources. And, and until we have the resources, I'm sorry, but th these things are going to happen. So I deal with how do how do I deal with what I've got all day to handle the individual cases. But how, uh, what am I going to do on the um, uh, advocacy level to raise the consciousness to a point where I get money, I get support to get funding? And we're talking about the national level, we're talking about the state level primarily. And the local level, our good voters in Cuyahoga County just uh, approved a levy that, that got us money uh, last year. So the, the, the voters in Cuyahoga County I, I say thank you, uh, but uh, on the state level and the national level, uh, it is a disappointment that they talk about it, but they don't uh, put uh, dollars to it to make it work, and that's a problem. Is there anything specific that our listeners can do to help that and to help move that along? Sure. There's a number of things. They could, they could write their congressperson or their senator or their president, or the persons running for public office, and let them know that um, uh, we do know how to treat, but they, we need the resources to do that. We have an act uh, that, as a result of President Kennedy um, uh, closing all the institutions in the early 60s, called the Mental Health Act. And part of it was to... Um, um, get folks into a more community environment. Well, the other part that Congress said was you can't have more than 16 beds in a hospital to prevent the over-proliferation of having all these uh, institutions. So that was in the early 60s. Um, the whole essence of drugs and treatment for drugs did not really come about until the 70s and 80s and the 90s. And they put the same restriction of the 16 beds on addiction. Well, I have providers right now that if they lift the restriction of the 16 beds, we could have 32 beds or 45 beds. And it's an act that was enacted in 1963, which might have been good for 1963, but for 2016, it's 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 contradictory. It, it doesn't work. So it was specifically for mental health, dealing with mental health in regular hospitals. Exactly. And so they could have a maximum of 16 beds in any hospital. Yes. To deal with that. Yeah. And so that same legislation is carried over and been in effect, and it's applied across the board for drug treatment and alcohol treatment. Exactly, Greg, you, you've got it. And today we need beds. And there are places that have the beds but can't use them and to get Medicaid reimbursement, uh, they'd have to pay for the beds themselves and they can't be paid for the beds themselves. So uh, if, if Congress or somebody could say, okay, let's have on the alcohol and drug side have 32 beds or remove the restriction altogether, that would be huge. Why don't they? Any idea? I don't know. Uh, our Congresswoman, Marsha Fudds, had a news conference in our office two years ago on this. There uh, are other uh, 
of folks uh, on the other side of the aisle that would support that. But that's that's just one example that 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 could change the number of people and the beds. Mm-hmm. Sure, and uh, that's, that's called Bill. What, what's the reference of that? It's the IMD rule. It's the IMD rule. IMD rule. Uh, okay. SAMHSA that they will not allow more than sixteen beds for reimbursement um, under Medicaid. Okay. And we would like to have that change so it removes it altogether. So that uh, the uh, limited beds for those providers that have the space today. Mm-hmm. Another one is that um, um, that uh, physicians can't treat more than thirty patients. We'd like to have that changed to hundred patients a year after their year of certification and treatment. So what is that? I have no idea why some of these right? rules are around. All I know is that. Uh, when we're in a crisis, those rules that hinder us from being successful come to the surface. The, the, the physicians now can only treat 30 people at a time. Well, they could treat more than that, and the idea would be to treat 100. Change it. Bring it back to reality. So they have the capacity to do that. They're just I believe they have the, the capacity to do that, mm-hmm. and I, ha- I believe they have the capacity to provide the resources uh, to make us far more successful than we have been in dealing with the extraordinary number of people that are dying from the use of opiates. What else? Well, um, the, the, the good doctors that treat, treat us in the hospitals um, have overprescribed opiates coming out. I've had two uh, operations in the last year, and I left both times with 50 oxycodones. I did not need 50. I let them know I didn't need 50, and 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 that's not unusual. The number of uh, uh, people that have begun their addiction um, because of a legitimate injury in the hospital is extraordinary, and, and I believe it's part of the reason why it faces America today, that the face of addiction is is in America today. And we, we have, yes, we're having uh, youth, but more youth, younger youth are getting it, more, more women, when only uh, at one point, three years ago, 12% of the women may have had addiction. Now it's going up to 45%. That's huge. And people with 60 never, we never follow somebody with 60 have it. Now that we have people over 60 have it. And I think it's part of that process of um, pain management that, that needs to be corrected. And, and certainly persons need pain management. But do they need 50 to leave with? And, and, um, and it's not only with docs, it's, it's dentists. And we need to get a hold of that and, uh, and realize that, um, that that's part of the problem. So what happens is the person leaves the hospital and they start using the oxycodone and say, oh, I like this. This glow is good. This is good stuff. But I can't afford it at $150 a crack. But you know what? Somebody comes along and says, "Hey, you know, you can get, you can get some pills from uh, um, heroin at five to ten bucks a hit." The glow continues, and the addiction, and it is begins. It's gross. 
So, Bill, boy, you've shared a heck of a lot and, and given our listeners uh, a lot to think about and a number of guides. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listening audience um, and with our family members who, uh, who are trying to help a loved one through uh, this? Uh... Well, I, I think what the family members uh, specifically... Um, I think we have to be uh, more aware of what's going on. Um, we know if, um, for example, if, uh, uh, if a kid is, um, if there's changing in their environment and changes the way they react and school is going down, that those are pretty big signals. And um, their grades in school going downhill. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of changes for sure. Yeah, and if mm -hmm. they, and if they have a fingernail file and lousy fingernails, they're not using it to clean their fingernails. They're using it to rub down the pill so they could snuff it into their nose. So um, how's that work? Well, you got a fingernail pile. You got a opiate pill, solid pill. You take it and you rub it down into a powder. You take a piece of paper, roll it up into a cone, and you snuff it up into your nose. That's how it works. So it's it's advanced well beyond the syringe and the needle in the arm. So the dealers have figured out how to market it uh, and make it uh, available. Um, I just think that um, I think that we have to do uh, a massive amount of public relations to let folks know this is the number one killer in our society. And, and we haven't done that yet. It, you know, we had a, a Ebola scare, and I don't think anybody died from it. We'll have twenty-five to 3,000 people die from this. Think about it. Yeah. Really, the number one killer it's a, of, our, of our society, and we're, we're talking about it. And I think that we need to get focused on what is real. So, the, so that, that campaign has yet to advance itself. And we need to advance that. And we need to advance all the best practices that we have. We have a lot of best practices and the ideas of consolidation, the ideas of central intake, the idea of finding out where all the resources are and sharing it. We need to really uh, advance those thoughts so that we could uh, better allocate our resources you know, uh, and, and find the programs that really work and, and save money and capitalize on those and, and have them uh, as, as public reporting. And, and that's easy to do nowadays. So uh, there's a lot of things that we could do that if we're going to stand on the corner of Ninth and Euclid and ask for money, we need to be on the same corner that says we save lives and this will save money by doing it this way. For example, and prison reentry. It costs $36,500 to treat a person in prison with mental illness. Outside, it costs us $3,500, no incarceration. We save the state tons of money, and we don't put the big felony on them. And our biggest mental health hospital is the Ohio Penitentiary. And they're there for a number of of um, 
infractions that they should be treated rather incarcerated. So we learn to be smart on this stuff and figure out a way to to be cost effective, but be effective and and um, and have open kind of accountability. How many people we lose this month, and why do we lose them? What what did we do? What did we do that that this person? Uh, went out again. We need to find out after the person has died what happened and track it back and find out if we could have done it different. We're not doing any of that. And um, we're just trying to find the next open bed. Yeah. And and that takes a lot of time. And I think that, that um, we could do things a lot better. I'm hopeful. My glass is half full, and I believe that that, that we could we could lick this thing. And um, the most successful thing is to see a person in recovery and listen to them talk about their recovery. Um, the thing that we all don't want is what you experience, and uh, and I, I understand that all too well. And that uh, what you are doing is uh, something uh, uh, that is really remarkable and, and important. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. Um, so you've covered a lot. Um, any final words for our listeners before we sign off today? Yes. If you're in the Cuyahoga County area and you need help you anytime, night or day, any day of the week, it's a 216-623-6888. That's our 24-7 hotline. You can talk to a professional about suicide ideology, mental illness, and or addiction. Can you give us that number again, Bill? Sure. 216-623-6888. Uh, if you want to uh, talk to me or one of our folks here at the uh, alcohol, alcohol, drug addiction, mental health board, which we call Adam. It's uh, 216-241-3400, extension 818, and that's my direct extension, and I'll talk to anyone. Well, th thank you very much, Bill. We've been visiting today with Bill Denahan, CEO of the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board in Cuyahoga County. Um, I'm Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Please stay tuned for future podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time. <laughs>